Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Aisma, welcome to the Boney Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So you do a lot of work in DNI, diversity and inclusion. Um, what is diversity inclusion for people that are not aware of the term? Yeah, diversity, equity, and inclusion is actually a field, and sometimes people also say belonging, um, but it's a field that emerged in the past, I think it's always been around, but it's gotten a resurgence in the past 10 years or so, but it's really a field that thinks about how to create workplaces that respect and honor the backgrounds of all people. We live in a society that disproportionately harms people of color in the workplace, women in the workplace, people with different religions in the workplace than what the privileged identity markers are, which typically are straight, white, rich, Christian men. Um, And so if you're not that or any one of those things, you actually might experience more um, hardship in the workplace, the workplace culture, have a harder time fitting in. And so the field of diversity and inclusion tries to address diversity by bringing more people of color, more women, more people from different backgrounds into the workplace. And inclusion tries to make the space, the workplace, a place that they want to stay, that they feel like that they can stay. So it's kind of human resources work, kind of leadership work, but it's really about creating workplaces that everybody can succeed in. And there's a lot of studies that show that a diverse company uh, tends to be more innovative and even more successful, right? But do you, you despite that, do you still find companies uh, are resistant to it? I mean, I think that even this idea that I used to say, you should care about diversity and inclusion because it makes you more successful. And lately I've been really questioning myself on that because why is that a metric for why you should care about people? Like, I think people should focus on diversity and inclusion in the workplace because people matter and people's experiences matter as human beings, even if your organization doesn't become more successful. But to answer your question, um, it is super important to say that like a lot of companies, even if they are open to it, like diversity, equity, inclusion work is getting such a huge resurgence in the light of police brutality and Black Lives Matter's response to it. Um, Even in the resistance to it previously, people now are excited about it, but they're still not committing to the actual work. Like a lot of it is performative. So mm. yes, there's resistance and people are like, yeah, we, ha- we had a d- diversity task force or a one day training. And it's like, this is a result of 500 years of racism in this country and prior to the existence of this particular country and thousands of years of racism and other isms in this whole world you're not going to address it if you're not going to actually give up some power or restructure power. And that's really hard for people to grasp. Yeah, I I see what you're saying. You know, this came up in another podcast when we were talking about pay up. And one thing that came up was, unfortunately, companies, especially companies that are publicly traded, they're so beholden to their shareholders and their shareholders first, uh, not even their employees and not even their Mm -hmm. customers that profits just come first and CEOs and executives are, are, are purely just concerned about the bottom line. And obviously that's a problem. So unfortunately that probably would be the driver for them. You know, if you talk about old revenues, uh, 
for them to actually include a, a DNI program, uh, you know, that will actually make impact if they find out that it'll increase their revenues. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's true. Like, it is what we say sometimes. I've just been trying to push myself not to because I've been putting boundaries around the companies that I choose to work with. Um, everybody wants DNI work right now, but if you're a company that is actually just doing it to be performative or only wants to do it for money, which I think makes sense for a lot of capitalist organizations out there, um, like I'm more likely to work with an organization that is actually trying to make an impact on their people. Because gotcha. at the end of the day, if you are working for diversity, equity, inclusion, with the bottom line in mind, when you reach the bottom line, are you going to stop caring about your people of color? Probably. And that's actually not doing anybody any service. Absolutely. Um, so it's not just race, right? Because uh, companies that I've worked for uh, have also had uh, programs related to disability, um, people, people with disability, and obviously also sex, sexual orientation, right? Yeah. Yeah, diversity, equity, inclusion, and depending on the kind of practitioner you are, um, I focus mainly on race because that's what I studied in school, and that's the identity marker that, to me, in this current moment, like, is the most visible, right? Like, you see Mm -hmm. someone's race, you react, you have bias based on the thing that's right in front of you, but I definitely practice an intersectional form of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and learn things every day around that. Intersectionality is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw who's an academic who said that we all have multiple identity markers, like, but her purpose for creating this term was you could be black and you could be a woman and you have two marginalized identity markers. And that means there's a compounding negative impact on your life experience. It -hmm. kind of shows up in the way that people have responded a lot more to the murder of George Floyd than they have to the murder of Breonna Taylor. And so I think it's not just race and it's also not just anything in isolation. Like I myself am a woman and a person of color and a person who is Muslim. And those are three things that intersect in a way to create a life experience for me that is all of those things exist together and they impact each other. And so I think a lot about the Kimberly Crenshaw term intersectionality when it comes to my work, because it's not just about race. And it's also not just about gender. It's also not just about anything. It's all of those things and how they interact with each other, which is how this gets really complex and requires a lot of reflection and a lot of learning. And you have to do that every single day. Like every single day I'm unlearning things and relearning things. And it's really, really hard because nothing is feel certain. And it feels like there's no way that we're ever going to get to like, I'm woke now, but I think what I'm starting to realize is that nobody has arrived. This is always a journey, and accepting that is the first step. Anytime someone's like, I'm woke, I'm just like, then you're definitely not. I like that. Yeah, I think I think, I think, think, always appreciate conversations, and I realized that recently is the conversations that I enjoy most where is when somebody's like not like 110% confident about what they're saying, which sounds strange because you want to be around confident people. But if somebody's like so um, linear about what their that their their thought process is that they won't, there's no room for them to learn something else. I think that's frustrating. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's when you think about what is right and what has been right in history books or in 
what workplace culture is, what schools, how schools operate. It's always changed. Yeah. Yeah. It's changed a lot, but it's also rooted in white supremacy culture. Like every single thing that, you know, I don't, I did not learn about my own culture growing up in my history books in Georgia. And I also didn't learn about the civil rights movement in the way that it was portrayed. Honestly, people who have power decide how things are run and people who have power historically have been rich, white, straight men um, who are able-bodied and Christian. Like all of the privileged identity markers have determined the world that we live in. And so um, a, a rule of thumb is to question everything, you know, Think about when you're making assumptions and ask questions instead, because nothing is set in stone. Like all of this is happening for by design, right? Like this system is designed to serve certain people. And my work is to start thinking about how to redesign it in small ways and big ways so that it serves all people instead of certain people. How, how do you make, how do you ensure that the companies you work with are not just engaging in performative measures, like you said, and are putting place, putting people in place of color or, or for, from a diverse background in positions that, are, that do have the power that you just mentioned? Yeah, that's a great question. There's actually no way for me to know who's being performative at the end of the day. Um, I think that is a very personal decision that every single person has to make at a company. I think there's two questions here. Like one, there's a lot of people engaging in performative allyship in this current moment in light of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others, too many others. And, you know, that question is an, a question that you can answer on your own. Like, am I being performative? Did I just say that because I wanted to show people that I'm woke? Did I post that on Instagram just because I want people to know? Or am I doing the same kind of thinking when nobody's watching? Am I doing that kind of uncomfortable work inside of my own like self as a non-black person of color where I do have power? I've never had to grow up being afraid of police murdering me. Um, am I thinking about that? Am I thinking about the privilege that I have there every single day in addition to posting stuff on Instagram, joining book clubs and donating and telling people stuff? I think that's been really interesting for me to think about as, a, as just a person, not even in this work, like, am I being performative? To answer your question, when it comes to organizations, you know, it's hard to ensure because there's so many things at play. Um, like I mentioned, like a one-day training is not going to change anything, but that still doesn't mean it doesn't have value, right? Sometimes people don't have the budget for more than a one-day training, and that's fine. Um, but I think, you know, if an organization is having a diversity task force that doesn't actually have power to change anything, or the organization doesn't have a culture where their people, particularly those from marginalized backgrounds, can tell the truth about their experiences, then it's really hard not to be performative. Even if your intention is to not be, if your culture is not that there in a place where people can tell the truth about how they feel and how they want to move forward, then you're not going to be able to actually know what that truth is enough to move forward. So the first step is to work on your culture, which is largely the work of diversity, equity, inclusion work. But it really depends at the end of the day on every single person being consenting to transforming a culture. It doesn't really work. Like you can build a new system, but if all the people in that system are not down with the cause, things aren't really going to change. It's just renaming a system instead of changing it. 
Yeah, and, and like you said earlier, the people that are making decisions, uh, it would be nice if they were diverse too, right? Just, Definitely. Uh, I, I, I used to work for a company and, uh, you know, a lot of companies have this requirement that they want to work with diverse third parties or vendors. Um, and uh, I would visit a lot of these vendors and, this is, and, and we made sure all of our vendors were quote-unquote diverse. But I remember I went to this one vendor in Dallas and you know, expecting it to be diverse, but, you know, it was just, it was just, you know, white males everywhere. And I was shocked because, you know, the numbers we looked at and their employment figures were, were, you know, were diverse. But then when I went to the mail room, it was all African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the problem with diversity without inclusion, right? Like yeah. you can, I always say this, but I'm just like, you have to disaggregate your data. I've definitely worked in places where, they're like, yeah, we're 50% this, 50% this, whatever, whatever, whatever. But when you look at the data, it actually is people in lower level positions are people of color and people at the top. And that's still not equity and it's not inclusion. And it's not a good way to to pretend to be diverse when you're not. Yeah. So t- tell me about what the, your organization, One Tilt. Um, how long have you been involved with them and, and what do they do? Wintel is, it stands for One Tiny Inclusive Little Thing. It's a diversity, equity, inclusion startup. And at a high level, we provide diversity and inclusion support to organizations. Um, And so we are actually really young. We're just over two years old, and I've been there for um, a little over one of those years. And we provide diversity and inclusion support to organizations and individuals in lots of different ways. So you could hire us to do deep engagements and year-long trainings. You could hire us to do an equity audit where we come in and to the point I made earlier around how do people actually feel and what are the numbers here and what is the actual truth here so we can start to move forward. Um, You can, I I personally run a fellowship um, of Washington, D.C. education leaders. My background is originally in education. And so equity in education is really important to me and the mission of One Tilt is where we started before we started taking on more clients outside of education. But essentially, this is my second year taking about a group of 20 people who work at really high-level positions across the D.C. area in education. Um, And they are all committed to becoming more inclusive people managers. And so our theory of change is if you can bring inclusion to your workplace, to your team at work as a manager that honors every single person on your team, you will be able to create the kinds of results that all kids deserve in Washington, D.C., which is a historically black city that has historically a lot of a really tumultuous history with education reform and schools that have had lots and lots of turnover in terms of teachers. Um, There's a lot of charter schools here. There's just a lot going on in the education space because everybody cares a lot about what happens, everybody being people who do care, um, what happens to the kids of D.C. So that's what I do, but we have lots and lots of opportunities like that. We also have virtual engagements for anyone who's interested in thinking about tools to bring diversity, equity, and inclusion to their workplace. You can check it out on org. but they're just like Zoom trainings that are really awesome of our typical in-person content that we shifted online in light of COVID. That's awesome. Who, who founded Untilt? Uh, Wintel was founded by Kimberly Diaz and Andrew Daub, who are, um, they were two former teachers. So again, another education experience. Kim is a woman of color and she was just like, I don't, I keep having managers tell me things about myself are, are not okay. Or like, 
you know, as she's a Latina woman and it's just like, as that experience happened to her, she was just like, I wish there was a way for managers to honor every single person. And we got more and more into the conversations of like, there are so many ways that people don't understand that leadership and management in the workplace, you're still working with people. So you are working with all of the identities and lived experiences they bring to the table. Like when you work with me, you're not just working with me, you're working with me as a person who is a woman, who is from the South, who is a Muslim, whose family is Bangladeshi, who's, you know, grew up in very different experiences as a daughter of immigrants than a lot of people did, whose English is not my first language. And all of that being said, like, you have to honor all of those things about me if you're going to treat me the way that I deserve to be treated and give me the space that I need to thrive at the workplace. And so the same thing applies to everybody. Who you are at work is all of you. And because you're a person, you can't divest yourself from your lived experiences and identities. So our management practice in this country fundamentally needs to shift to honor that. Otherwise, we're not going to actually be able to work in any kind of way that supports every single person unless it's the kind of person that the structure already supports, which is typically white men. Yeah, one, th- one question I asked every guest is, uh, because it's, uh, our, our audience is mostly Bangladeshi, um, I asked, do your fr- does your family understand what you do? And I think that's especially, in sh- uh, that would be, uh, I'm really interested in your response because I feel like your particular type of job, uh, most of our parents, or my parents certainly, would not, it would be so, it would seem so ambiguous to them that they wouldn't understand what you do. Do your, do your folks understand what you do? Yeah, I think so. I think it took a lot of conversations actually to get to a place where we understand what I do. But I think I've always been really thoughtful about diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly anti-racism work, because my experience as a daughter of immigrants in the deep South, like I didn't really grow up with, for example, New York has a very big community of Desi people. So does the South, but it's not the same. And so I think racism played a really big role in my life growing up, particularly post 9-11, particularly as I watched people who are Black. Um, Black people grew up around me because Atlanta is a historically Black city. It's also historically refugee resettlement city. Um, And I saw a lot of things that I think made it super clear to me that things have to change because that's the deep South is a place where that's all very clear. Like plantation houses still exist there. There are still statues that are Confederate army soldiers. There are still KKK rallies still to this day in Georgia. So seeing all of those things, I talked about it growing up. And so I think my parents do understand my work. They probably wish I made like a ton more money, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I mean, they came here so that I could make choices for myself. And that's what I've done. And I think at the end of the day, they're proud of that. Yeah, I've, I've noticed some of that. My parents live in Norcross um, and driving there sometimes I've, 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 uh, I've seen flags and, and it's shocking. Yeah, you know, I actually used to live in Norcross when I was really little. And yeah, Georgia is a place that still, you know, um, the governor of Georgia literally says problematic racist things all the time and it's he crazy, still gets yeah. to run the country. So, Yeah, I can't imagine being the mayor having to deal with him. You know, to even getting getting things done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> are you following? Uh, were you following Nabila Islam's campaign? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We actually went to high school together. I think. Oh wow. Um, 
but a lot of people who are people of color and immigrants live in Gwinnett County. So all of us live in a pretty small county, but um, yeah, I was, I was following that for a while. Gwinnett's interesting. Gwinnett's like an Austin. If you take like, all, compare like Austin in the middle of Texas, yeah. it's like a hipster or not. Well, I'm not saying Gwinnett hipster, but it's like, you know, you have like a, a whole lot of diversity in, you know, in, in a mostly homogenous area. I feel. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting because it's like, there are so many places like that. Like Atlanta is like that, you know, yeah. um, there are so many like blue cities and red states. Yeah. And that is just, it's really by design, right? Like redlining. I think yeah. that if people of color or people with low income had the choice to live in any neighborhood, they probably would live in lots of different neighborhoods. But I think for lots of reasons, we are relegated to certain areas like even in Gwinnett County, there are certain parts where people are not, there are city jurisdictions to not build apartments. Because if you build apartments, people with lower income will move in. There are certain jurisdictions that don't have public transportation. And so a lot of this is designed to keep people of color in one place um, so that they don't encroach upon, you know, encroach, I'm making air quotes right now, um, where people of power are typically white or white neighborhoods, you know, like they call it white flight, but um, and then, you know, the opposite of that is gentrification, where a lot of parts of Gwinnett are being gentrified, even though they've historically been neighborhoods for people of color for a long time. And, I, you know, a lot of people of color were concentrated in Atlanta and then moved to Gwinnett because it was cheaper to live there as Atlanta gets gentrified. Okay. Going back to DNI work, uh, I'm curious about your thoughts of affinity groups. I, I used to be really involved in with my company's affinity group, the Asian affinity group as a president. But one of the f- one feedback I would receive from people that didn't want to receive, uh, join affinity groups is that they felt like it was actually uh, it was actually doing the opposite of what they were intended to do. Is trying it's keeping the people separate um, and and highlighting the differences. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think that there is value in conversations across lines of difference and conversations across lines of similarity. I think the only way to really, really engage with figuring out who you are and how you walk through this world is by doing both. Like I have conversations with groups of people who are from all sorts of racial backgrounds. I have conversations with groups of people who are only people who identify as Asian Americans, only people who identify as Asian American women, only people who identify even, you know, more granular as South Asian women. And I think that there is healing that you can find in an affinity group. There's also learning that you can find across lines of difference. And being a part of all sorts of conversations helps you add multiple lenses to your own understanding of who you are and helps you come home to yourself in a way that I don't think you would have if you like we don't live in a world yet where there are having a conversation with only people that are different than you is going to create a liberated world. Like I still deserve that space to talk to other women who have had similar experiences to me um, so that we can together unpack like, Oh, that happened to you too. I wasn't imagining it. I didn't make that up in my head. Those are things that actually happen to other people. Let's talk about that. So I think, all spaces, all dialogue is valuable if they're held in a way that honors everybody in the room. But I think for me personally, I've liked being a part of affinity groups as well as groups across lines of difference because it helps me learn things about myself each time. 
Yeah, and it's it's also emphasizes diversity of thought, and I think that's something that needs to be emphasized, um, and the importance of it because it's it's like you said, like we we mentioned on the top of the podcast, is that companies are just a lot more thriving if people bring different ideas to the table, and not everyone thinks exactly the same. I mean, if somebody's building, if a company builds a build product X, and everybody wants to build that product, you know, one certain way. It's just not going to be a. It's just not going to be a successful product because your consumers aren't one certain way. So just having that diversity of thought and people with the different backgrounds, like you said, um, you know, adds to your success. Yeah, definitely. And I think, but I also think like people, and I think like work is different than like personal experience. I think diversity of thought is helpful in creating products and raising money or whatever the output is. But I think personally, affinity groups have been really helpful because. I get to unpack my experience with other people who have had that same experience. There are almost no people in this country that understand what it means to be like a Bangladeshi girl growing up in racist Georgia post 9-11 besides the friends that I grew yeah. up with. And that's what made us so close, right? Like nobody understands that experience. And I deserve to unpack that experience with other people because if I don't unpack it, it's going to hold me back from everything else I could do in this life. And so I think there's value personally and professionally in, in identity work. Um, and I, I do believe that the world would be a safer place for everybody if we all engaged in it in, the, in an authentic way. Did you receive a lot of racism, po- a lot of um, hate post 9-11? I mean, I don't remember because I, I think I did. And then I just totally just the few years after 9-11, I think were really hard for me and I don't, think about them that much. So it's something that I'm working through. I definitely remember a few distinct things. Like I remember watching 9-11 happen at school in fourth grade on TV. And, you know, my brother's name is Omar. And that was the name of one of the people that George Bush was targeting in his deck of cards or whatever. Um, And so like things like that really scared me. My mom wears a hijab. That scared me. And a lot of things happened relating to those, those three things, how people talk to me at school, asking me about all those things that I still am processing. Um, But I think, especially for me, my family at the same time, in the years right after 9-11, also left our very diverse neighborhood to move to an all-white neighborhood where every single family's house besides ours had a sign that said, another family supporting Bush and his troops, which was like, oh, okay, this is a neighborhood where every single person probably hates us. Mm. And that was really hard too, because that's where I ended up going to middle school and high school and um, making friends eventually. So I went from a school where there were almost, actually there were like literally no white people that I remember to a school where my first day of class in seventh grade, I was the only not white person in my classroom. And for a lot of reasons, like that is a part of my own processing and journey and what brought me to this work because it impacted me in lots of different ways. Yeah, one thing I think you know, post Trump, it would is difficult to get uh, a lot of people to understand is that it's not for me. I was uh, I used to have these conversations with people that it's not just about our feelings, uh, which are important, but it's also about just like literal uh, actual safety. So I used to always have to explain to people that you know the because of Trump's um, uh, you know the stuff that he's saying, it could actually impact my mom's safety because like you said if your mom's a hijabi my mom's a hijabi and she goes outside somebody may get all amped up by listening to trump and actually take action so it's not just about our feelings it could actually impact like our 
livelihood and our safety. Yeah. And it's all important. Like our livelihood and our safety, like even if nothing happens, your feeling of living in fear for that takes away so much from you. Like every single day, people of color, women, black people walk through this world with some level of fear because we don't yet live in a world that is safe for everybody. And when you work through fear every single day, you you're giving up a lot of other things emotionally. Um, And so I think for many of us, our goal, particularly in my experience as a daughter of immigrants, like immigrants are here to survive. They left something that was not as good as what they thought they could have here. And survival is such a key part. And I think my work and my own hope is that we actually get past survival and build a world where everybody can thrive. And that is not where we live yet because as we already know with Black Lives Matter, there are many of us who are literally trying just to not die. And we have to talk about that and we have to work on that because at the end of the day, you know, none of us are going to be able to, to be our best selves if we are dealing with the daily costs of fear or anxiety or sadness or post-traumatic stress disorder just from being how hard it is to be a person of color, particularly a Black person in this country. What changes do you aspire to see in the Bengali community regarding like self-representation, but also you talked about this a lot, is allyship with the uh, Black community? I think what's really difficult is there are so many ways in which groups of people of color, like Black people and non-Black people, and there's so much anti-Blackness in the Bengali community because nobody wants to be the quote-unquote worst minority, right? Like everybody is pitted against each other, particularly Asians with the model minority myth have been used by white people as a wedge to show like, we're not racist because we like the Asians, you know, look at them, they're the model minority. All of that is made up to pit us against each other. And so particularly in our community, what I'm really hoping for is a lot more understanding that at the end of the day, many of us might believe that we worked hard to, to get what we have and other people haven't. And like a lot of the problematic things I hear and the mindsets, it's just like, actually at the end of the day, we are all people and we are all deserving of a life that we want to live. It doesn't matter what you look like, where you come from. It doesn't matter like what story you tell yourself about how hard you work. Like we live in a world that's created to hold people of color back and we have to join together in, in support of mutual liberation um, or else we're not going to get it. Like at the end of the day, all of the things that I hear that are really anti-Black or racist in the Bengali community, saying those things does not put us higher. And we shouldn't be saying them anyway. Like we don't get more out of it. We don't get anything out of it. It actually just makes us bad people. So we need to get to a place where we can all honor every single person and care about them because they are a human being and they're a part of our community. Yeah, I mean, we literally, came, you know, really started immigrating about 50, 60 years ago. I mean, we, we don't have this 400 years of oppression that, you know, that it's kind of like if we were still under Pakistani rule and we would ask ourselves, are we, are we being treated differently? And it's kind of like that. I mean, I mean, obviously, blacks have had it a lot worse than that, a lot worse than Bengalis uh, had it under Pakistani rule. But it's like, it's like that sort of uh, years of oppression that blacks have been, you know, put under. Yeah. And I mean, it's not even comparable, right? Like yeah. what happened in Pakistan, like there's this book that I'm about to read called The Blood Telegram. You know, like 3 million people died in a horrible genocide. Like it's not comparable, but it's still rooted in white supremacy culture. Like 
that was a response to British colonialization. That was still a response to white supremacy culture. And I'm, I'm working through my own understanding of where I come from. But I think at the end of the day, to your point around, the only reason that we even get to be here was because of the Immigration Act of 1965, which 1965 was also a year for the civil rights movement. Yeah. Black people fought for the rights of immigrants to be here. So we owe them so much. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's a great conversation. I hope we can continue. Um, I mean, I think the work you're doing with One Tilt is, is, is really admirable. Um, any other programs you have going on, please come back and talk about it. Uh, but I uh, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And um, if anyone has any questions or wants to talk more, they can reach me um, at uzma at onetilt.org. Great. Thanks, Uzma. Gotta be honest, with diamonds and pearls, yeah, yeah, Bengalis in New York, all over the world, uh, it's the bony show, uh, can you handle this, representing the boroughs where the bangles live, from the slang we spit, to the gangs we with, it doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh, I say, hey, come on, can you handle this, representing the boroughs where the bangles live, from the slang we 